No, not many, eh? You always challenge when you go to a doctor's and they call it the waiting room. <laughs> I always found that a fascinating term. Just wait in the waiting room. So Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1 and 2. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. I'll fill in the gap for you, don't worry. Verse 27. This is often how we feel when we're waiting. And this is what the people of God are expressing to God as they're waiting for the fulfillment of this comfort, of all this consolation and encouragement that God is offering. They say, why do you say, God says, why do you say, O Jacob, and complain, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, my cause is disregarded by God? Anyone ever had that feeling? That word disregarded in the Hebrew is basically like standing before a judge and you're wanting him to hear your case and he basically leans over and says, case deferred. We'll set another date. And it's that kind of feeling of like, oh, it's a deferral again. I've got to wait to have my case heard. Do you not know, have you not heard, the Lord is everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope, or some translations say wait, in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. It's a wonderful promise at the end of the chapter. Um, it's everything in between that we wrestle with. If you'll excuse me, I'm just going to grab a... What if I could get someone just to grab another music stand for my Bible, sorry. Because I can see as we go on, it's just going <laughs> to get heavier and heavier. Thank you so much, Dave. Yeah. Um, these are challenging times, as already been referenced, that we're living in at the moment. This last year has seen so much change, not just within our own nation, but internationally, worldwide. And I don't need to list all those things for you. And they've had a tremendous impact upon people, upon uh, individuals, couples, families, businesses, as we've heard referenced in prayer this morning. Um, upon whole nations, not just with COVID, but all of the impact of that and other things that have gone on that have a ripple effect internationally. And it's affected people in various ways. It's affected people's mental health, their emotional health, their relational health. If you follow the news, we know that in the last year, issues of mental health and anxiety and depression have escalated enormously not just within New Zealand, but uh, enormously in, um, 
England and America. One of our daughters is a, a PICU nurse. She works in um, pediatric intensive care unit at Starship. And talking with her over this last year, as her and her fellow staff have contact with nurses around the world, colleagues who have gone from there to work in London, Spain, Germany, and Italy. And, uh, you know, she was saying there that as they talk with them, it's not just New Zealand that's affected with this mental health issue. Staff on the front line are literally having breakdowns. Some are even, have even tragically taken their own lives. The stress that has occurred worldwide is just enormous. And there's times of anxiety, times also it's caused people to reevaluate. Because when you're locked down and you've got all this time, you're either going to frivolously waste it away or you're going to use it well. And it's caused a lot of people to just pause and reevaluate life and relationships and what's really important. And those times where we're in between waiting gives us time to really reevaluate what our values are, what's important to us. And in Isaiah 40, what we have is what we could call a transition chapter in the whole book, that the first 39 chapters are dealing with the history and the story of Israel disobeying God, wandering away from God, bearing the consequences of their choices, their sins, their actions. And when we hit chapter 40, it's like this massive change occurs. And the rest of the book just begins to declare the incredible love and comfort that God wants to bring to his people, letting them know that while we sometimes have to bear the consequences of our sin and our choices, God is constantly there with words of comfort. And these are times in which we need to hear words of comfort. And so God comes along and says to Isaiah, this is what I want you to say to these people in this condition, and here's how I want you to say it. He says, I want you to say, comfort, comfort my people. The Latin word from comfort, uh, where comfort derives from, literally means to put in strength to come alongside and comfort and console and encourage someone so much so that they are strengthened. We all know the power of words of comfort, don't we? When somebody comes alongside, puts an arm around, or just comes and says words of comfort. I remember as a 29-year-old young man, as a pastor in our first pastorate, having literally a breakdown, burnout, and a retired Presbyterian pastor who was at that point the chaplain to the wharf in Napier City in the Hawke's Bay came to visit one day and he will never know, he's probably with the Lord now given his age back then, the power of his words of comfort. He knocked on our door, he said to Pip, I've come to visit Maz, I know what's going on, I won't stay long. He had a bouquet of flowers that I thought were for Pip and he gave them to me. He talked briefly, he sat beside me on the couch, he put his arm around me, I've never forgotten his words, and all he said is, Maz, I understand what you're going through, but I just want to say, you will come through. That's all he said prayed and left, went into the back room of our home, sat in the spare room, looked out the window and bawled my eyes out. 
but one word of comfort. And I never, have never forgotten, not just the words, but the act and the heart that came with it. It's not just what he said, it's how he said it. And this is what Isaiah is saying. Um, verse 2, speak tenderly. Say, it, say these words and say it like this. Speak tenderly. The word tenderly in the Hebrew conveys the idea of it is a genuine heartfelt word. It's something that's flowing from the heart. And so God is instructing Isaiah what to say and how to say it. And those words I find are incredibly relevant for the times we're living in. Just those two verses. People who are feeling constrained, worn down, beaten up, anxious, uncertain of the times they're living in, wondering, you know, if they're going to have an income, if business is going to continue, all of these things, they need someone to come alongside them and say, comfort, comfort, and to speak it tenderly with a heart that really does care. Because we struggle in the in-between times. We don't like waiting. Our society has conditioned us, particularly in our Western world, to want to hurry. We're always in a hurry. How many of you have ever stood in a supermarket and you're approaching the checkout counter and all the aisles and lines, how many of you have honestly stood there for a while and evaluated which one you think is moving the quickest? Because you don't want to wait, eh? I've done that, and then you get to the next one behind the one in front of you, and their FPOS card's not working. <laughs> and you're watching the lines you ignore, just going, <sighs> bad choice, Maz. We do it on the motorway, don't we? We evaluate which lane is moving the fastest, and you'll see those dangerous drivers going, choo -choo, none of which are you. A young pastor about to enter the ministry, this is a true story, I read his story, he uh, rung a more seasoned pastor and said to him, if there's one piece of advice you would give me as I'm going into the pastorate, what would that be? And he was on the other end of the phone, poised with pen and paper, and the man on the other end of the phone said, you must ruthlessly eliminate all hurry from your life. This man wrote it down and said, yeah, 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 okay, but what piece of advice would you really give me? He repeated it. You must ruthlessly eliminate all hurry from your life. If you've ever read the, John, the great revivalist John Wesley, John Wesley in his journal said this one day, he made this entry, I will not seek to accomplish each day what I cannot do in an unhurried spirit. I will not seek to accomplish in any in my day what I cannot do in an unhurried spirit. Carl Jung, the great psychotherapist, said, hurry is not of the devil, hurry is the devil. See, when we're in a hurry, when we're making haste, when we're panicking, when we're anxious and unwilling to wait, we can make bad choices. 
because we don't want to wait. But God is a God who you discover as you read through the scriptures who is never what? In a hurry. Never. God has a calendar and a timetable that is completely different to us because as we'll see, you'll see in Isaiah, and we don't have time to go through all the verses because there's so many, but I encourage you to read it, that God declares in his character that he is eternal. It's a great theme through Isaiah that God is the eternal God. We sometimes just think, oh, that means God lives forever. No, no. Yes, God is eternal in that he has never had a beginning, will never have an end, and don't even try and figure that out. We can't, our human minds can't figure that out. But the idea that God is eternal, or as elsewhere in Isaiah, God says, I inhabit eternity, is the idea that God is outside of time and space. God is not influenced by time and space, as we are. Therefore, God can intervene in time and space because he is eternal. So therefore, God works to an eternal timetable, not ours. And that's a struggle for us. So when God comes to Abraham in the Old Testament at 75 years old and says, you're finally going to be a father, Abraham's like, woohoo! 25 years later, at the age of 99, he becomes a dad. God's timetable was very different. Israel was promised to become a nation. They waited for 400 years. 400 years. The Messiah was first promised in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. It was 4,000 years till he appeared. All of creation, Romans 8 tells us, since the fall, is waiting, groaning. Waiting for its full redemption, which will occur when Christ returns. No more tsunamis going along the beach, sorry. I watched our water from our property. <laughs> Waiting is defined as that eager, patient expectation for something not yet gained or realized, but there's a certainty that it's going to happen. An absolute certainty that it's going to happen. We want God to work to our timetable and he just doesn't. And so the waiting factor is a very real challenge for us. As we wait for answers to prayer, provision, all manner of people we're praying for, we're waiting. We're waiting. I was fascinated as a kid going to the circus one time. How many of you have ever seen the trapeze artist? You know, it's like, wow. And you've got someone swinging, doing all sorts of fancy stuff, and then you have the catcher, who is generally upside down. I decided to look into this to see, how does this dynamic work? And it's a very simple illustration. There has to be a relationship of trust between the person who is the acrobat, I'll call them, and the catcher. The reason being is when it comes to that moment when the acrobat is going to be caught, they, for a brief moment, ah, oh, it's a phone. <laughs> when I passed it, uh, if a phone went off, 
the general deal was uh, everybody got pizza for lunch. <laughs> Sorry, brother. <laughs> but since I'm not doing that and this is not my church, it doesn't count. <laughs> You're off the hook. <laughs> Back to the trapeze artist. There's a moment in time where I didn't realise in this exchange where the acrobat was caught by the catcher that the acrobat, as they turn to face the catcher, is suspended in midair for a moment holding nothing. And they are utterly dependent on the relationship with the catcher because it's the catcher, hence their name, whose job and responsibility it is to reach out and do just that, and grab them. So there is two dynamics going on, trust and suspended. That's waiting. That's waiting to be caught by God. And this is what this whole dynamic of our relationship and journey with Christ and with the Father is, is that we are often waiting feeling sometimes suspended. You've said this, I've prayed for this, we've hoped for this. When is it going to be? And what sustains us during this time? And I'll only have time just to dwell on a couple of quick things and then we're going to pick up those last verses next week as our focus on practically how do we wait on God? What does it mean to put our hope in God, to wait on God, so that our strength is renewed? And two things emerge out of Isaiah 40 that challenge us about what our trust and confidence is in, in order to be able to go through seasons of waiting confidently, peacefully. And the first is simply this. When God says comfort, comfort, they're words, aren't they? Our confidence and strength is derived by the word of God that stands forever. That stands forever. Let's just pick up in verse 6 for a moment. A voice says, cry out, and I said, what shall I cry? All men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. You've just been compared to grass. As if we haven't heard it once, Isaiah, God says it a second time, the grass withers and the flowers fall, but. This three-letter word, but, is one of my favorite words in the whole of Scripture. Because not always, but most times, it's followed by a statement that gives us faith and confidence and promise, but God. Isaiah is being told, life is very fleeting, and in actual fact, in light of eternity, it's very brief. It's like the grass that withers and the flowers that fall. They're beautiful one day, and then they're diminishing the next, as it were. God's just not making a statement about our human state. It's cause for thought and reflection to realize the brevity and the fragility of life ought to cause us to think about 
the things that then are lasting. It's not to depress us, it's to make us think. If life is fragile and life is brief, then what really lasts? And this then God says, but the word of our God stands forever. So in times that are incredibly challenging, shaky, shifting, whether it's in your personal life, it's our national life, our world life, we are strengthened and sustained by that which lasts forever. And that phrase, lasts forever, or stands forever, some translations, remains forever, conveys the idea that the word of God rises above all else and is of eternal duration. If I was to put the word simply in English, God is saying, my word stands, remains, lasts forever. It rises above all other things. It is eternal in its duration. The psalmist said, your name and your word you have exalted above all things. Your name and your word you have exalted above all things. Jesus said in John 10, the scriptures cannot be broken. He's saying a similar kind of thing. The scriptures are eternal in nature because they've been given by an eternal God. So that what he speaks is eternal. They last forever. And then if you read in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22, Peter says, now that your souls have been purified through obeying the truth, this word, you have been born again by not a perishable seed, but a seed that is imperishable, the lasting word of God. And he then quotes that exact passage we've just read from Isaiah. And he's saying the same thing. God's word, what you've prayed for this morning, the gospel, the message of salvation of Christ that gives new birth is an imperishable, eternally lasting seed, as it were, that when planted in you, gives birth to eternal life that you can never lose. So what strengthens us during this time of false facts, fake news, <laughs> fake book, I'm off fake book, <laughs> look, I know I'm being a little cynical and these all have their place, but the reality is we're living in a world that is in a hurry, that is feeding us sound bites of information so rapidly that we don't have time to even evaluate if they're true or not because we're on to the next one. I believe this is why God chose to give us his word in writing. This is why for me I'll only ever read a a printed Bible. <laughs> Nothing wrong with one on your device, but there is something about the written word that causes you to slow down, to read, to reflect. Visual images and soundbite news move so fast. I, I don't have time to go into it, but there's, I've read there's been some wonderful psychological research that's been done on it that you don't have time to interact with it in a way that you can really evaluate. It is more an emotive reaction. And you only have to go to comment sections on social media about very high topical things to see people's emotive reactions not based in any reality or truth. That's why we are strengthened by this book, which is the word of truth. 
God's word defines for us the way reality really is about human nature, human history, the nature of God, eternal things, and how things are going to play out. So when we're waiting, wondering where God is, what's happening, we are strengthened by feeding upon the word of God. Because this stands forever. All the other forms of news and information will perish, will pass away. But the word of God stands forever. It is our foundation of truth, and it's that which gives us perspective. And sometimes in the waiting, we need that time to gain perspective. To actually begin to see what God is doing. The second thing that we'll just jump to and then we'll close, is that we are strengthened by God's character. In Isaiah 40, from verse 12 onwards, and we won't have time to in any way explain all of this, but God enters into a conversation with Isaiah, very similar to that with Job, if you were to read Job chapters 38 to 41, where God has gone through all of Job's journey and then God basically gives him a whole bunch of rhetorical questions. And God is now doing this with Isaiah. He's saying, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket? Or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance. Who has understood the mind of the Lord? Or instructed him as his counsellor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him? And who taught him the right way? Who, has, who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? And then God basically goes on to say the nations will all pass away, all of this. God is essentially saying, in the waiting, you sometimes are forgetting who I am. And in the waiting, sometimes we want to reduce God to our own human level. And in certain streams of Christianity, that's being done today in a very dangerous way. That we humanize God. And we want to reduce God to our human level because we don't understand what's going on. I've got some news for you and me. We never really will. And I'm okay with that. Because as God has said to Isaiah here, who has known the mind of God? God is eternal. We are not. In the sense that God is outside of time and space. He is the only one who knows the end from the beginning. So he is the one to trust. And when we know the true character of someone, we can trust them more, can't we? Or not. So one of the key things in finding strength from the word of God, the scriptures, is that the scriptures then reveal to us the character of God. The prophet Jeremiah in the ninth chapter said to people, if you are going to boast of anything, boast of this that you know me. 
that I am kind and merciful and loving and forgiving. Jesus defined eternal life in John 17 in this way, and this is eternal life that you know that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've seen. Jesus defined eternal life as a relationship. This is eternal life that they know you. Bringing people into a relationship of eternal life is not saying a five-step prayer or anything. I know when I cross that line from being dead in sin to coming alive in Christ, I know the pastor, I have no recollection exactly of what he said, but he said something about, say this prayer after me. He started, all I remember was saying a couple of words, then falling on the floor and just weeping. He said, I lay there for some 20 minutes. I had no consciousness of time. And I just cried and cried. My prayer was a cry. Apparently, I said no coherent language. I just cried according to him. He just sat there patiently praying. Because I came to the realization, having watched Pip and her family and heard the gospel for the first time just several days before, that it wasn't about being good enough. It wasn't about me trying to clean my life up to be worthy of God. It was he wanted a relationship with me. And in that relationship, he would clean me up. And so when I got up off the floor, I said to Jeff, the pastor, he said, how are you feeling? Well, you have to understand my background, which I won't go into, but by, at, just prior to that very moment, I was a occult-practicing, drug-taking, punk-rocking teenager who had run away from home. And I looked at him and I said to him, wow, I said, I feel so clean. I said, you know, it's like one of those nights you're so drunken out of it and you wake up the next morning and you're home. <laughs> and you wonder... How did I get here? <laughs> I said, and I know it sounds a little crass, but you have to understand I had no concept of church, which was probably a good thing. <laughs> and I said to him, I said, I just feel so clean and like I'm home. This is where I belong. And so from the outset, I realized eternal life is a relationship with the one true living God and Jesus Christ whom he sent. And we should never make it anything else but that. We are trying to bring people into relationship. There is a hunger for God and truth, in spite of the other things I've said about fake news, in the world today like there never has been. A certain church's ministry I follow in the States went from, during lockdown, 1,000 people live streaming their service within two weeks to 50,000, to 75,000. At one point, it reached 350,000. People writing in for books by the pastor who's an author on how to deal with anxiety, books about truth. They added 1,000 new members to their church 
during COVID lockdown. Baptisms every week, while, when they could. And what churches are beginning to find is that there is a hunger for truth during this season we are in. People are realising they're being fed truth and misinformation. And people are starting, as I said at the beginning, to re-evaluate their lives. This is probably, potentially, one of the greatest opportunities for the body of Christ that we've ever had. To present the truth. To come alongside people and say, comfort, comfort. There is a strength that you can find in the word of God. This defines truth and reality. There is a strength you can find in the character of God. That great A.W. Tozer, who wrote a challenging book on the knowledge of the holy, and I'll close with this, said this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind, he said, will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion. And man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever, is ever greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base as the worshipper entertains high or low thoughts of God. It's time to think high thoughts of God. And you will find those thoughts in this book. Because as we think about God, so we go. So we rise or we fall. That's why the church must return to the... Sorry, I'm going to do a little hobby horse here. <laughs> return to the expository preaching of God's word. People don't want, as Martin Lloyd-Jones used to call it, sermonettes for Christianettes. They want to hear the truth about God. Let's stand together. Father, we stand in your presence and we thank you for your goodness. We want to be numbered amongst those people who, as Jeremiah said, we can boast that we know God, that you are kind, you are loving, you are forgiving, you are long-suffering. Father, I pray for each one of us that you will do a reviving work of grace in our hearts, that there would be an increased hunger to know who you truly are. Open your word to us, we pray, that you might reveal yourself in all your fullness to us so that we will be strengthened by the truth of your word that is eternal, that cannot be broken, that stands forever. And that we will be strengthened as we know you, your character, your attributes, who you are, so that when we feel we're in that waiting moment, suspended, as it were, we know that every time you will catch us. 
because you've promised in the Psalms that though we stumble and fall, we are upheld by your hand. We are never cast down. Father, we thank you for your goodness, for your greatness, and that we are your children. I pray your blessing over this part of your family here at Snell's Beach Baptist. And as they have been in the waiting, I pray that you will bring every expectation to its fulfillment. And that this church, like all the churches across our nation, would rise to be relevant for a time such as this that we find ourselves in. That we who are a people who have words of comfort and eternal hope would be able to pass that on to the world around us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Mez. Let's remain standing. Anybody's spirit soaring this morning? Hallelujah. I know my spirit is just really soaring, and we've got a very appropriate song to finish with. So after, I'd like to invite the worship team up. How great is our God? How great is our awesome God? I'd like to invite anybody this morning who would like to be prayed for, to receive the touch of God on their life in faith. Um, coming up the front is no mystical thing. It's just you or me responding to what we feel in our heart. And, uh, you know, your heart might be beating today and you think, I've just got to make a response to God. I invite you this morning to come up to the front and Mazza and, and some of the leaders would love to pray for you, especially if you've never been born again. You've never made the Lord Jesus Christ your saviour and your Lord. If you have never done that, and I know that you will know that in your heart, I'd love to pray with you as um, the, the leaders would today. This will be a very, very special day for you. You will never forget it. Mazza certainly never forgot the day he surrendered his heart to Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Thanks, team.
Hallelujah. Father, we just want to thank you for your presence here with us today. God, your presence is everything to us. It is everything, Lord. We, we just love your presence. We love the fact that you promise to be with us. As you said to Joshua, don't be frightened, don't be discouraged. I will be with you wherever you go. God, we pray that as we leave this place today, we might go in the power of the Lord God Almighty. God, would you fill us afresh with power to rise up in these dark days. We pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. God bless.